Uh, that was an eternally consequential day when Jesus came into our life. Our destiny was tr- changed from eternal damnation, headed in that direction, to eternal blessing when he saved us from the consequences of our sin. If you'll open your copy of the scripture, we're in the Sermon on the Mount again this morning, Matthew chapter 5. We begin at verse 17. We pick up there in Jesus' sermon, the greatest sermon ever preached. Here I am uh, trying to preach it, uh, preaching his sermon. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 is where we begin, and we'll read through to verse 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm using as a subject, as you perhaps know already, Christ, the scriptures, and you. Christ, the scriptures, and you. Our view of and commitment to scripture should be the same as our Lord. Without a doubt, Jesus held the word of God in the highest esteem. Robert Leitner writes, quote, The Savior's attitude toward scripture, his purpose in using scripture, his extensive use of scripture, and his methods and application of scripture all portray his reverent regard for the word of God, end of quote. So, for us, being Christ-like includes having a reverent regard or a high esteem for the word of God. We must echo Jesus in respect to the word of God. We must follow Jesus in the way he held scripture high the way he treated scripture we are to mimic our lord in the way he related to the word of god in our passage we see christ high regard for in fact his unequivocal belief that the bible is the word of god we observe in the text jesus's own words his own assertion that scripture has been fulfilled He states that it has come to pass. That is evidence of the unique nature of Scripture. The Bible is unlike any other book in the world. Do you agree with me? I hope you do, because if you do, you agree with Jesus. It is unlike any other literature in the world. There are a lot of religious books. There are a lot of things written, but none of them are comparable to the Word of God, because the Bible indeed is the Word of God. Our first heading here uh, for verse 17 is this, the fulfillment of Scripture. The fulfillment of Scripture. When you hear Jesus' words, do not think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. Do understand those words do not come out of a vacuum. Some in Israel had heard his teaching. 
They had heard his preaching, and they were scandalized by his teaching on the Sabbath. They were offended by his teaching on the cleanness rules. Now, he did not affirm what the rabbis taught about the Sabbath. He did not affirm what the men who constructed or led in Israel said about cleanliness. He refuted all of those things, and that raised the ire of his opponents. And those objections to those things you'll see later in the Gospels. Gospel, as you read, you'll see his confrontation with those who had a false view of the Sabbath and what it means. And all of the things that were taught falsely about the word of God and about how people were to live. Jesus refuted all of that. But his hearers, they accused him of abolishing the law and the prophets. And so Jesus said, no, that is not what I'm doing. He says, don't think that I came to that word abolish means to denote to utterly overthrow or destroy. In a literal sense of the term, it is to smash to the ground. It is to destroy. Jesus here is using it figuratively. and It means to bring to naught, to render useless, to nullify. So with Jesus saying, do not think that I came to nullify or to render useless the law of the prophets. We could even state it like this, since these words are a prohibition that forbids such thinking. Jesus was saying, do not even entertain this thought. Or do not let such a notion enter your mind that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. On the contrary, I didn't come. To abolish the law or the prophets. Now when our Lord says I did not come. That, that verb come there. He is referring to his incarnation. That moment in time. When the second person of the Trinity. Entered into space time dimension. Became a human being. When the, the second person of the Trinity. Joined to himself humanity. When the eternal God became a man, yet retaining his deity and all of the attributes thereto. That's what he means when he says, I did not come. Jesus did not come down from heaven from his eternal face-to-face communion with the Father, John 1.1, for the purpose of destroying divine law. And law and prophets, in fact, that standard title for the Old Testament Standard language referring to the Old Testament. God's written word, the Old Testament. And here it talks about the prophets. Jesus states it a little differently than it is stated elsewhere in the scripture. It says, law are the prophets. He didn't come to abolish the law, nor the prophets. And why the prophets? Because see, the prophets receive the word of God. The prophets wrote it down. The writing prophets did. They reiterated and they reinforced it. And the prophets knew that they were speaking the word of God 3,808 times. You'll find in the Old Testament where it says, thus says the Lord. They understood that they weren't writing something that came out of their mind, out of their own imaginations, out of their thinking. They were saying that which God had communicated to them. Second Peter 1. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men spoke. You're moved by the Holy Spirit. Speak from God. 
Jesus, therefore, did not come to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. That word fulfill is used in Matthew. Now, you need to understand that word fulfill means prophetic fulfillment. In fact, in Matthew, 75% of the time when that word is used, it is referring to the fulfillment of prophecy. The Old Testament, it prophesied the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, there are verbal prophecies. In the Old Testament, there are symbols signifying he's coming. There are types in the old. Moses was a type of Christ. Moses said, there is a prophet like unto me who is coming. And Peter repeats it in Acts chapter 3. Yes, there's a prophet coming and he is going to be a prophet like me. Moses was a type of Christ. There's foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus Christ. His death was foreshadowed. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. His burial was taught there. His resurrection was foreshadowed there. It's predicted all there. In Matthew's gospel account, Matthew understood this under the the superintendence of the Holy Spirit. He quotes texts that Jesus' life fulfilled. You'll remember them instantly. We've been through this. And you'll see, he, he does this, Matthew does. He, it says, this, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. In verse 23, behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. It's the reality that's being given about Christ, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In verse 23 of Matthew 2, it says, And came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. Jesus fulfilled prophecy. His very life fulfilled it. In Matthew chapter 8, another example, it says, This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. It's Isaiah 53. It goes on and on like this. The reality that Jesus fulfills Scripture. Jesus himself during his ministry showed that he was the fulfillment of specific prophecies. You may recall in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 through 19, Jesus was with his hometown people. And he was in the synagogue. He stood up to read. The attendant gave him the book. And he turned to the place in Isaiah, Isaiah 61. And he said, after he read it, this text has been fulfilled in your hearing. On another occasion... He told the Jewish religious leaders in John chapter 5, verse 9. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify of me. Underscore me. He stood right there and told him, I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. You guys are thinking you can get saved. You can get eternal life by searching in the scripture. Here is eternal life standing right before you. It's talking about me. You're missing it. Here I am. All you need to do is believe in me. I'm here. You want eternal life? Here I am. Old Testament pointed to him. The Old Testament's talked about him. In fact, Christ is the main theme of the Old Testament. He's front row and center. 
You just go through it. You do a study sometimes, just check it out, and you'll say, wow, it talks about him. He is coming. In the New Testament, he's come. He's here. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. He fulfills the moral law of God. He, how did he do that? He did it by his obedience. He fulfilled the prophecies by specifics of his life. The sacrificial system of Israel was all pointing to him. To Messiah, to his work. He came to fulfill the scripture. So the idea that he came to abolish um, the law was utter nonsense. It was an absurdity of gigantic proportions. They missed the point. Jesus said, no, 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 no. I am the fulfillment of the law. So the fulfillment of scripture. There's another point that Jesus teaches here about the scripture. uh, The authority of the scripture. The authority of the scripture. The prophetic fulfillment of scripture in the life of Jesus Christ demonstrates its authority and truthfulness. So that's a good thing to know. It demonstrates his authority, its authority, and truthfulness. Jesus makes a statement here about the abiding, about the enduring authority and truthfulness of the word of God. He prefaces it with these words, this clause. Check it out in verse 18. For truly I say to you. This formulation signifies a very important statement to follow. For truly, I say to you. Now, let's go a little deeper. You know what it is in the Greek? The first word, that truly, it's amen. We say amen or amen. Jesus said, amen, I say to you. Or I affirm this for a fact. And then he launches into what he is going to state. Jesus says this, he wants to emphasize the truth of what he is about to say. Jesus emphasizes this because the utter truthfulness and authority of the Bible is critical to everything we are to know and believe as his followers. Now, now get this point. If God has spoken to us in the Bible, then the Bible must be truthful because he is a God of truth. It must be reliable in all its parts because he is utterly reliable, God is. It must be lastingly authoritative because God is the only uh, ultimate and eternally abiding authority. If the Bible is not truthful in even one of its very small parts then it is not from God and it has no more authority over us than any merely human document. It's got to be truthful. It has to be authoritative. So Jesus affirms this point. He emphasizes this point. And he affirms that it is God's word even down to the smallest parts. That's why he says here in verse 18, Until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. It's everlastingly authoritative. The authority of the word of God is revealed by the fact that heaven and earth cannot pass away until all of the word is accomplished. 
You get that? The universe is not going anywhere. This planet is not going anywhere until all the word of God is accomplished. You recall April 22nd, Earth Day. People trying to save the planet. They say this is the only planet we got. It, it might be for the new heavens and the new earth. Amen. <laughs> Amen. This is not my final destination. If you're a child of God, this is not your final destination. But let me tell you, they're not going to save it. You know why? God's saving it. He is saving it by his power so that all that he has planned in redemptive history will be fulfilled. That's why they won't blow the planet up. Because God is going to save it until he's done with it. He's accomplished his eternal purpose. By the way, let me drop this in. Everything we say about the Old Testament, its authority, its truthfulness, applies to the New Testament. It's the whole of the word of God. But let's dig a little further here in the text. When Jesus talks about uh, down to the minutest parts, he says, not the smallest letter. Smallest letter. The authority of the Bible goes all the way down to the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Smallest letter in the Greek is Yoda, but in the Hebrew, the smallest letter is Yod. We transliterate it Y-O-D. Yod. It's similar to an English apostrophe. Small letter there in the Hebrew alphabet. The word stroke represents... Another, um, a sh- the stroke or, or a minuscule mark or extension that distinguishes one Hebrew letter from another. For example, in English, a capital F is distinguished from a capital E by an extension at the bottom of the E, right? That's the way it is. And then what Jesus is saying He's saying he expresses the significance of the seemingly insignificant letter and extension here. The word of God is uh, authoritative and truthful down to the smallest, minutest things in it. In fact, let me show you something. Keep your place here. Go over with me to... um, Luke chapter 16. Jesus talks about this again. He expresses it a little differently, but he talks about it nonetheless. It's the same thing, and I think this is important to see. Luke chapter 16 and verse 17. You'll see this uh, statement here from our Lord. Verse 16, uh, chapter 16, excuse me, verse 17 of Luke, and it says this, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than from one stroke of a letter of the law to fail. Did you get that? It is easier for the universe to go out of existence than even the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet that's in the word of God to fail. One letter of one little word in the Bible cannot fail the Bible cannot fail it's truthfulness and it's authority let's ask some people about the unfailing character of the Bible now this is our imagination we're going to imagine this let's ask those folk who the antediluvians remember them 
They lived in Noah's day, and Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He said, repent. He preached to them because God is going to flood the entire world with the, with the flood, and they said, yeah, sure. Uh, let's ask him this. You heard the word of God through Noah. Did God's word fail? They would say, uh, no. What about the people of Sodom and Gomorrah? Did God's word fail? <laughs> what about the nation of Israel in conquering the promised land? Come on now, Bible readers. Joshua 21 verse 45 says this, Not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass can't fail it's the word of God in case you're wondering about the future you said all oh, the stuff in the past what about the future I'm glad you asked you're very thoughtful Matthew chapter 24 now Jesus is in the midst of his prophetic teaching the Olivet Discourse and he's talking about things that are going to happen in the future Matthew chapter 24. And we're going to see in a verse here, I'm going to read here in a moment, and you're going to read along with me with your own eyes, you're going to see that he equates his words with the word of God. And he's going to make a statement about the future. The things he talks about in his all of that discourse, the future, the prophetic things that are going to come to pass. And he says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away. Get this? But my words will not pass away. So what that tells us is that all the things that relate to the future, eschatological things, things the last things, the things that are going to come in the future, including the second coming of Jesus Christ, that will happen. Will not fail. That's why the choir could sing, we're going to see his face. The reason we can sing that with confidence because we know the word of God is true and it's not going to fail. That's why you can tell somebody that the word of God is unfailing and when he says there's a heaven, people go there. There's a hell, people go there. You can take that to the bank. It's not going to fail the word of God. It's going to happen. The word of God is inerrant. There are no errors in it. Uh, I, I was amazed yesterday. I was reading a secular press account where they had done an archaeological dig. And what caught my attention was it said 4,500-year-old pagan goddess was unearthed. Anath, there's A-N-A-T-H, Anath, Astorte, Astorte, Astoreth in the Old Testament. That's what they unearthed. A stone image of that thing. The Bible in the book of Judges talks about the Canaanites. In fact, the article said uh, the Canaanites were a polytheistic people. They were, because the Bible says it. And I thought, wow, they got that thing on display. It's an ugly stone statue. <laughs> but Anath, or Anath, that goddess of sex and war, which the Canaanites in the polytheistic religion worshipped an idol 
And they unearthed this thing archaeologically, demonstrating again the truthfulness of the scripture. I've always been amazed and wondered and is joyful when they go digging around in Palestine. That's where they found this thing, by the way. They always unearth something that shows, yes, the Bible was right all along. I remember, I like to tell the story about the Hittites. The Hittites, you know, they used to say, the critics, the Bible critics, oh, the Bible can't, there are no such thing as the Hittites. These people don't exist. And they were quite arrogant about it until they kept digging around in their spades and they found, oh, inscriptions, Hittites. <laughs> Secular things. The Bible is true. It's true. It's the word of God. You remember the skeptic Voltaire? He died in 1778. The worst day of his life. He was a, a writer and a poet. He was a deist. He believed that God just set things in motion and walked away. That's what deists are. He once declared, in 100 years, the Bible will be a forgotten and unknown book. 50 to our 100 years later, scholars kind of divide whether it's 50 years or 100. That in the house that he once lived in, the Geneva Bible Society operated there. <laughs> the irony of it. Really, the Bible's going to be a forgotten, forgotten book. And it's a book that's filled head to from the floor to ceiling with Geneva Bibles. The Bible of the Puritans, by the way. God's word is true. You can count on it. That's what Jesus is saying. Now you'll notice something here. In the last part of verse 18, he says, until all is accomplished in Matthew 5, 18, accomplished, come to pass, to happen. Without exception, every prophecy, command, promise, um, figure, symbol will come to pass. It will happen. Without question. Happen. Well then, with all that reality in mind, what do we do? Um... The next point, the responses to the scripture. Verse 19. Whoever then knows one of the least of these commandments and teaches us to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Because scripture is authoritative, all of it, because it's binding on all of us, even the least of the commandments are binding on us. Jesus tells us that there are least commandments and there are ones that are greater. They carry more weight than others. For example, what is the great and foremost commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God is number one. It's at the top of the list. They're least commandments. Those are, are not as weighty as others. And we can see this even clearly in Matthew chapter 23, 23. You need to go there. I think it would be helpful for you to see it with your own eyes. Matthew chapter 23, 23. And you can see what the word of God has to say. As Jesus is excoriating the scribes and Pharisees, they're hypocrites. And he is laying out the truth to them telling them of their spiritual blindness and hypocrisy and their destiny to eternal damnation because of their refusal to come to him for salvation. 
he says something here about their spiritual practice that demonstrates their hypocrisy. Verse 23 of Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. What are they? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You do them all. See, let me make an a, a editorial comment here. It's easy to go get a piece of mint. A little deal. And cumin is a here, Lord. Ain't I religious? That it is to execute justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Jesus said you're doing both. You don't leave any of it undone. The one who annuls, back in our text, that word annuls means to loose or to relax one's obligation to obey it and then teach others to do the same. A point of application, brothers and sisters, our responsibility is to be teaching people and encouraging people to obey all of the word of God that's what you do but Jesus says for people who refuse to obey it themselves they disregard certain parts ah, I'm doing that I'm not doing that like there's some smorgasbord a buffet <laughs> give me that I don't want that no 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 all of it. But those who behave that way and teach others to do the same says they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. In contrast, in this verse, you'll see what it says here, but whoever keeps and teaches them, they obey themselves and teach others to do so. He, that person, shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, you're wondering, who's going to do the calling? Well, first of all, I'm going to tell you, it's not going to be our peers. It's not going to be our fellow believers. You know why? Because our fellow believers uh, only know us partially. They don't know what you're doing at home, what you're doing on the Internet, what you're looking at. Am I getting close to home now? <laughs> They don't know what you're talking about in private. They don't know that. They see you on Sunday maybe or some other place when you can kind of, I'm good to go. God is the one. Because he knows us comprehensively. You can't hide a thing from him. He ain't sleeping. He knows what you're doing. He knows when you're obeying and when you're not. And what God is going to do in the kingdom of heaven, that is the consummated kingdom when we're in eternity, for those who have been faithful to keep his word and teach others to do so, he says, you are great because you treated my word with the highest esteem and it was demonstrated in your life, your obedience, and you called others to do the same thing. For those who were blowing it off, pretending I ain't doing all that, you say, you're the least. You'll be, 
your esteem won't be the same as the others. You want to be great in the kingdom? You want to be called great by God? Do his word. You see, Jesus and God is very important. Their word. There are consequences eternally for those negatively and positively in how you treat the word of God. Your rank and reward in heaven will be partly determined by how you handle the word of God in life. Before we go further, let me give you a little footnote. Jesus talking here about fulfilling the word and about the law, keeping all of that. He's talking about the moral law of God, which is eternal and absolute. He's not talking about the dietary laws because that was done away with. He's not talking about the civil laws of Israel. One one of the civil laws of Israel was this, that if people were caught committing adultery, guess what? They were stoned, put to death. Adultery is still wrong. But we don't put people to death for that today, right? At least not the authorities. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go on. Verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. There will be people excluded from the kingdom of heaven. The previous verse, there are people in the kingdom, the great ones and the, those who are the least. But then there are those who will not be in it because their righteousness is an external righteousness. That's the scribes and the Pharisees. And we understand what Jesus means by righteousness because eventually we'll get to verses 21 and following. There are some antitheses uh, that, that he lays out there that shows the difference between external righteousness and the righteousness that the word of God requires, which emanates from the heart. To be righteous, uh, to be in the kingdom, first of all, you have to be regenerated. You have to be born again from above or that supernatural transaction has to take place. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. And when a person is born again, then they have the ability to fulfill the requirements of the law. Romans 8, 4. What does the law do? One of his purposes is this. It is designed to show men their lostness, their need for a savior. Let me put it like this. One cannot be saved by keeping the law. Because God requires 100% compliance 100% of the time. Have you tried that lately? No mere human being with a fallen nature can do that. And God gets you right to that place where you say, "Ah, I can't do that. God says, right. Look to my son. The Lord Jesus Christ who kept my law perfectly. He lived a perfect life all the time, 100% of the time, and he was qualified to die for you on the cross. And if you will trust him, you can get the result of and the benefits of his perfect life in exchange for your sin. You don't get into the kingdom of heaven by keeping the law. 
you get in the kingdom of heaven by being born again. But then you have the ability to, to obey the law of God, the word of God. In fact, you want to do it. Amen. Psalm 119, oh, verse 97, oh, how I love your law. That's the heartbeat of a true child of God. They love the law of God. They just don't have some affection for the words themselves. They have an affection for the God of the word and they love his law. There was a time when we hated the word of God, right? Because it hemmed us in. It kept us from what we wanted to do. But when you come to Christ, you love the word of God. You now want to obey it. You want to do it. And when you fail, you're sad about it. You repent. Believers and the scripture. Let me just give you a few things scripture does for us. Number one is guidance in the dark world. Psalm 119, 105. It's guidance in a dark world. We need the the light of the word of God. Do we not? Before our path to guide us. Because it's morally dark, sinfully dark. And we need the light of divine truth to guide us. Not only that, it sanctifies us in a sinful world. Psalm 119, verse 11. We, we hide the word in our heart that we may not sin against him. It revives our soul. Read it. Meditate on it. You know what else it does? It comforts. It gives hope and encouragement. It teaches us. It trains us in righteousness so that we may be useful to Jesus Christ in our service. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 says, It nourishes our faith. It protects us from error. It builds us up in truth. It teaches us more about our God and our Lord, our Savior, and all that he has for us. You, that's the you part, what the word of God will do for you. May God help you do that. Now, let me tell you what, you can't, it won't do any of this apart from (laughs) salvation. None of that will matter to you until you come to faith in Jesus Christ. You have to trust him. You have to call on the name of the Lord. He who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on the name of the Lord. Lord, I am a sinner. I need you. I'm going to turn from my sins. I recognize you're the Savior. You died for sinners. You were raised from the dead. And I want to give my life to you to follow you the rest of my life. Save me. When you call on the name of the Lord, the Lord will save you. There are people in this room who can testify to that. You have to come to him. He will deliver you from your sin. He'll deliver you from what you deserve and give you what you don't. He'll deliver you from sin and damnation and give you grace and bliss in heaven. And you get to walk with him in this life until you go be with him in the next. Come to Christ today. And believers love increasingly the word of God. That it may bless your soul and bless your heart. Amen. Amen. For it will do that. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God and our Father, we bless your name for your truths. Uttered by your Son, the Word incarnate, the living Word, Jesus Christ. About the Word of God, which is living and powerful. Sharp at any two-edged sword. Discerning between soul and spirit. 
discerner of our hearts. We bless you for your word. And may we uh, grow in our understanding of and living it and encouraging one another to live it. Lord, help us uh, take these truths to heart. Take them deeply, seriously. We pray you do that for your glory. We pray for sinners in this room who need Christ. Pray you open their eyes, direct them to the Savior, the all-sufficient Savior who can save them. Pray for those who may be listening online who are lost as well, uh, that they may look to the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone can save if they will turn to him in faith. Grant it for your glory. Grant it for their eternal benefit and joy. And we pray all of these things in the name of the Savior, Jesus our Lord. Amen.